emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ed Kless, back with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, folks, we are pleased to have our interview with Warren Berger. How you doing, Ron? I'm great, Ed. Really looking forward to this. Yes, absolutely. Warren Berger, has been a, we've been a big fan of his for, I guess, about four or five years now since his first book came out. And I can distinctly remember quoting his book. I'm probably going to share that quote with, with uh, you folks later. But I, I always have to say it's B-E-R-G-E-R, Warren Berger, not the Supreme Court Justice. So, right. <laughs> Warren, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Well, quick bio. Warren calls himself a questionologist and is the creator of the popular website, amorebeautifulquestion.com and the author of the Beautiful Questions series of books, all focusing on the power of inquiry to spark breakthrough ideas and improve your daily life. Before focusing on questioning, Warren wrote the internationally acclaimed Glimmer, How Design Can Transform Business and Your Life. Warren writes for a variety of publications, including Fast Company, Harvard Business Review, Psychology Today, and was a longtime contributor at Wired Magazine and the New York Times. He has appeared on NBC's Today Show, ABC News, CNN, and an expert on NPR's All Things Considered, and today on The Soul of Enterprise. So, Warren, first, I have to tell you that developing questions for a questionologist was very intimidating. I'll bet. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true. You probably think I'm going to be analyzing every question, right? So the first question I have for you is actually a directive statement, and I want to ask you about that too later. Tell me okay. how you became a questionologist. Yeah, well, I was, um, you know, I've, I've been a journalist for a long time. So when you're a journalist, you know, questioning is kind of your tool of the trade. And um, so I, I was really a, a big time questioner for a long time and always worked on my questions and tried to, you know, get them to be as, uh, as, as penetrating and effective as I could. But I never really thought about it that much as a um as a specialty a specialty or something i would you know really go into until maybe about six or seven years ago i was writing at that time about design and uh design thinking uh which is kind of a hot thing in the business world or has been in recent years and uh it's just the idea that you should sort of design all of your approaches and you should try to think like a designer and as I was writing about that, uh, I realized that one of the uh, main things designers do when they're trying to solve problems is they really focus on asking the right question. And I thought that was really interesting. And then sort of I, I picked up on that and then I started to notice that it extended beyond designers, that if you looked at some of the best business leaders, they were also really focused on asking the right questions or, or um, tackling a big question. Um, so it, it occurred to me that maybe this was a good area to, to zero in on, you know, just the power of questions, um, uh, what questions can do. 
and um, and can we get better at asking questions? So that became my big topic, you know, over the last five or six years. And hence, I started to call myself a questionologist, meaning, you know, one who studies the art and science of questions. And interestingly enough, I'm just going to take a quick side note down here. You said started life out as a, a journalist or had, had been in journalism. What do you think the state of journalism today is with regard to questions? Um, you know, I think it's probably the same as it's always been. Um, some people use questions very well as journalists, um, and some people don't. Um, you know, every, everyone is sort of, um, everyone is familiar with the term gotcha, gotcha questions. And, you know, that's always been a problem in uh, in journalism. Um, by the way, there's a time for a gotcha question. <laughs> you know, when you're closing in on someone in the midst of a scandal, um, there probably is a good time to hit them with that question that really kind of nails them. But I think what we see with gotcha questions when it gets used more broadly is that um, it becomes a, a tactic for generating attention. It becomes a way for the journalists to sort of make their own reputation. And so it can, it can kind of get out of hand. And I think, you know, the state of journalism right now is that uh, some people are using questions in that way and it's and it's maybe less effective uh, but there's still a lot of journalists who are using questioning the right way which is to try to really dig in and get some good information uh that that maybe people don't know about i, I think that's also true i was just thinking about this this morning uh, and having watched a little bit of the hearings with the the, the major tech companies being pulled before congress yet again for yeah. a congressional panel and thinking Boy, these guys could use some work with you. That, meaning the Congress people about yeah. asking questions because they don't <laughs> seem to ask many questions rather than just make statements. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. They're 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 using it as a a forum to look good themselves. And and you know, one of the things I say about questions is I, I talk about authentic questions versus what I sometimes label as counterfeit questions. You know. And a counterfeit question is is a question that really doesn't isn't really seeking to learn. You know that would be an authentic question. That's a question that's seeking to learn something and to and to get some new information. A counterfeit question often has an agenda. You know the agenda may be make the questioner look really smart, or you know the agenda may be criticism. You know you want to criticize someone, so you phrase it as a question, as in. Uh, what were you thinking when you did that? Are you, are you crazy? <laughs> Those are questions, but they're really not questions. They're really statements disguised as questions. Yeah, and even questions that are designed to sometimes even intimidate. Uh, you know, I think back on the, you know, are you for us or against us? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think it, it questioning uh, gets misused a lot as a as a tool. I mean, it it's. Um, it's used to disguise other things and to make things seem more reasonable than really they might be, you know, to say, so that you can always say, oh, all I was doing was asking a question. But in fact, you know, you may be, sometimes you're embedding something in that question that is really um, a statement or a criticism or something that isn't doing what a question is supposed to do. Uh, there, there's one particular type of question that I find particularly intriguing, and I do hear it from politicians relatively often, especially in the media, 
Uh, I also hear it a lot from consultants, which is I'm a consultant by trade. So that's how I got into this whole question thing. But when somebody asks, can I be honest with you? Mm. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, me, meaning yeah. like everything I've said previously. Exactly. Yeah, you probably don't. <laughs> You right. don't want to. <laughs> yeah, I would. I would dub that an unnecessary question. It's like it's like, why are you even asking that question? It should be understood that uh, that you're being honest. Yeah, and and uh, you know, uh, it, it that that is uh, similar to the uh, not a question, but the the statement. People often they often start by saying, "Don't take offense at this," but you know, whenever someone says that, you you know you're in trouble. So right. Right. Well, let me ask you this, uh, and then let's get to the authentic questions. And I and, I, and I'm, I'm sure Ron would would probably agree with me. Want to stick there for the most part. But how much of of being a good questioner is also being a good listener? Oh, it's a huge part of it, um, because if we're talking, well, first of all, let me say this: um, you, you you kind of have to separate uh, questions into um, you kind of separate them into a couple of different kinds. You separate them into the questions that you ask yourself and the questions that you're asking other people. So I almost think of those as two different kinds of questions, right? Uh, and as a leader, you might have, there might be really important questions you want to ask yourself. But when we talk about the questions that you ask other people, um, those are very, very dependent on listening because a lot of times the question you should be asking someone is, is, based on what they were just telling you, or it should be, you know, you should be listening to what people are saying to you. And then you use questions to kind of dig into that and go deeper and try to understand more. So it's huge. It's especially big. We were talking about journalists earlier. It's especially big for journalists. I notice all the time. It's one of my pet peeves. The journalists who are doing an interview and they're not listening to the answer that was just given. And they're moving on to the next question on their list. Uh, you also see people do this in job interviews. You see them do it in, in lots of situations where you're interviewing somebody else. They, they just don't listen to the answer. Instead, they move to their next question. And oftentimes, they're leaving something great on the table. You know, somebody has said something really interesting that almost begs out for a follow-up and instead, uh, they move on to the next question because they weren't really listening. Interesting you say that. I mean, the, one of the, the first books that I read about questions, and uh, perhaps I'll ask, ask you about this later, but the, the guy's name is Mahan Khalsa, who wrote a mm. great, great book called Let's Get Real or Let's Not Play. But the original book that that was based on, was he, he gave to me as a gift. It was a, uh, it, it called Asking Effective Questions. Ah. And wow. one of the things that... that um, Kalsa says, and he's doing this in the business sales context. He was a very big believer in not taking notes or writing down what the person is saying and instead mm -hmm. just gently focused on listening to them. And right. then even asking permission after you hear something to say, can I take a note about that? Or would yeah. you, I'm just going to jot this down to make sure that you're fully engaged with them. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think uh, it's, it's a challenge for, for journalists um, if they're taking notes. You know, they oftentimes just miss, miss a lot of stuff. Yeah.
these stuff. Well, we're already up against our first break. Want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is, of course, the Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes and previews to upcoming shows out there. So thesoulofenterprise.com, please visit us. But right now, a word from our sponsor. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Warren Berger, author of A More Beautiful Question, which came out in 2014, Warren, and I think I read it the following year, but it was on my list of all-time uh, favorite books of the year. And we even used your Q force exercise in that book in some groups and it was just really powerful. And I wanted to ask you, what is a beautiful question? Well, it's a very subjective term, <laughs> you know, um, originally I started focusing on the term beautiful questions because I had come across a, a line from a poem by E.E. E. Cummings. And the line was, always the beautiful answer who asks a more beautiful question. And I really liked that line. And I decided I was going to take the end of that line and make it the title of my book, a more beautiful question. And then once I did that, well, well then I had to write the book, <laughs> but I also had to figure out, well, when I write the book, how am I going to reference this term, beautiful questions? So what I came up with was my own definition of it. And, and my own definition of beautiful questions, since I was focused on um, business leaders and innovators, creative people, I thought about a beautiful question as a question that's really ambitious, uh, but also doable. It's actionable. 
And it's the kind of question that could, in the end, lead to some kind of a change. You know, maybe it could lead to a change in the way people do things. It could change, lead to a change in your company. It could to lead to a change in the business world, a change in your community. Um, and so that was the way I defined it. And, and I would look for questions that someone had asked, like, you know, why aren't we doing a better job at X, you know, or why hasn't someone come up with a better way to solve this particular problem? I would look for those kinds of questions that were being asked by people. And then I'd focus in on it and tell the story of how they came to that question and what they did about it. And so I find beautiful questions. I, that's the lens I look at them through is, you know, are you asking sort of big ambitious questions that have the potential to br uh, bring about some kind of a change? And, and you give many examples in the book of, of businesses that basically were inspired by a question. I, was it George Eastman Polaroid when his took a picture of his yeah, daughter on I, vacation? Yeah, well, not George Eastman. Uh, he was Kodak, but it was, uh, it was uh, Land. Ed, Edmund right. Land yes. was the uh, founder of Polaroid. And it was really interesting. Um, I love his story because it, it makes a couple of interesting points. Um, you know, he went, um, Polaroid was having a lot of trouble back in, in the 40s. Uh, you know, there was some question of whether they would survive. They were they were uh, making headlights for cars, polarized headlights. Um, they hadn't gotten into the camera business yet. Um, and they were, they were having some struggles. And then he went off on vacation, um, was taking pictures with a standard camera. And remember in the old days, you had to take the, take the picture. Then you got, took the film out. You sent it out to be developed. It took about a week. It was a, a whole long process. And while he was taking pictures, his daughter, who was only you know, three to four years old at the time, um, asked him the question, uh, why do we have to wait for the picture? Because he had said to her, oh, we're going to have to send the film out. It's going to take a while. You're not going to see that picture I just took of you for a while. And she asked, why do we have to wait for the picture? And Edwin Land said that question got into his, his brain. And he, was, he started to think about yeah, why do we have to wait? And wouldn't it be great if you didn't have to wait? And what would you have to do in order to make, you know, instant photography possible? And that got him going on, the, you know, the Polaroid instant camera. And uh, so what I love about that is it shows the power of a question, you know, that a question can set something in motion. Uh, the other thing I love about it is that it came from a three-year-old child. And, you know, that gets into the the whole amazing phenomenon of kids and questions. You know, kids are some of the greatest questioners in the world. Uh, they, they have a gift for it and they will come up with incredible questions. And so a lot of times what I'm talking to people about is how do you get back to that questioner that you were when you were three or four years old? Because that's really valuable. That's really powerful if you can somehow recapture that or unlock that. If you anticipated my next question, which was, why is it that you wrote that a child asks about 40,000 questions between the ages of two and five, and then it starts to dwindle after that? And of course, teenagers don't ask questions because they know all the answers. They know it all. <laughs> but why do yeah. you think that is, Warren? Why, why do we just drum out questions? Is it the school system? Is it? Yeah. I, well, I think it's a combination of factors. You know, what, what tends to um, um, stifle questioning is um, a lot of it is fear, 
you know, if, if you are afraid that you're going to be judged or that, or that there's no place for these questions, it's not the right time, it's not the right place, or that you're going to be seen as, um, you know, overstepping your bounds, uh, any of those things can stifle questioning. And that's true both in the, in the educational a setting and it's true in the business world as well. You know, if, if bosses and leaders are wondering why their people aren't asking more questions, a lot of it has to do with the environment you create and whether people feel safe and, uh, and welcome uh, in asking questions. So I think what happens in school is, you know, um, we tend to focus on downloading lots of information into kids' heads. And so we don't we don't spend as much time or allow as much time for them to explore uh, and learn, you know, and even though school is supposed to be all about learning, we're oftentimes more, we're paying more attention to the downloading of information and then making sure they memorize it and can repeat it back. But the actual learning, you know, that has to come more from the child. You know, the child has to be interested, uh, has to be wondering has to be curious. And if you allow that to happen, then they are going to have questions. They are going to want to ask. And then you're, uh, you're in a much better situation for learning, in my view, because now you've got kids engaged. And, uh, and once they're engaged, you know, they're more likely to learn and retain that information. So, uh, you know, I think we need to, there are a lot of changes that need to happen in classrooms to just create a little bit more of a safe feeling for questioning. And there are things that teachers can do, you know, they can do exercises where the whole point is to ask questions and where you get rewarded for asking a good question, as opposed to always getting rewarded for the answer, right, which is the way it is now. Um, you have to do little things like this in order to just send that signal, signal to kids that, yeah, we do want questions. Yeah, your questions are valuable and they are appreciated. Um, you, we've got to do that if you want kids to keep on asking questions. One of the things you point out that I just love is that a fantastic, a beautiful question can come from the dumbest kid in the room. Because the thing about questioning is, you know, it's, it's a great leveler. It's a, it's, it, it levels the playing field in a way because anyone can ask a question. Whereas with answers, you know, only the person who has the answer uh, gets to participate, right? So, so it sort of ends up that the, the, the sort of the smart people, the smart kids or the kids who've really done their homework or, you know, memorize stuff more or whatever, they get to have uh, the, the spotlight, you know, they get to talk and the other kids don't. But if you open it up to questions, lots of us have questions and uh, you don't have to know the answer in order to ask a question. So, you know, you have to kind of be willing to let people ask questions. Look, sometimes that means they're going to ask a dumb question. And I think we have to have tolerance for that because the funny thing about dumb questions is sometimes we think a question is a, is a, a stupid question. And sometimes that turns out to be a really profound question, like that example I gave you earlier with the, the little girl and the camera, you know, her asking, why do we have to wait for the picture? Well, a lot of people would say that's a dumb question, right? Like, you know, it's just the way it is. That's the way the world is. Why are you asking that? But you see, that question of hers 
sort of got at something very fundamental. And so it ended up being very powerful. So I do think there's a value in naive questions, questions from outsiders, questions from beginners. They can sometimes point out to us things that we're assuming or taking for granted. Well, one of the things that really came home during the Q-Force exercise and getting groups to think in terms of questions and then write them down is just like you said, everybody recognizes a great question. So it's yeah. really easy to separate the, you know, the good ones from the great ones or the not so good ones. And it just rise to the top because just like the little girl's question, they inspire you. You want to answer it now. You want to answer it. But what's really funny is sometimes those great questions are very simple and they're very fundamental. You know, not always. Sometimes a great question can also be more complex. I mean, sometimes it can be a, a, a really intelligent well-constructed, thoughtful question, but it doesn't have to be that way. You know, sometimes the really simple, basic question is the one that makes everyone step back and go, wow, that's right. Why, why haven't we thought about that? You know, it's it's amazing the power that has. Yeah. You know, we're big fans of Richard Feynman and he said, I would rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. Yeah, Um, That's great. And, and somewhere in, in the book, you pose the thought or even state it that questions are becoming more valuable than answers. Make the case for that, because I, I find that convincing, by the way. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's kind of a counterintuitive idea. So, so, so sometimes, you know, people say, what do you mean by that? What could, because we always assume all the value lies in the answers. Right. Um, but the, the thing is, if you think of all the information we have at our fingertips now, you could think of those as answers, right? And um, all of the known information we have. And there is so much of it now that it almost becomes, it almost has started to lose some of its value. You know, there's, there's so much information that we can get on Google uh, that are answers that are available to us. Um, that, that, that information to me, as it proliferates, starts to become a little less valuable, just like anything that proliferates becomes a little less valuable. Meanwhile, the, the questions become more valuable because we need to ask the right questions in order to access that information and in order to figure out what's the right information, which information is relevant and which information isn't. In order to do any of that, we have to ask the right questions. You know, as everyone knows, Google is dependent on the questions you ask. Um, you know, artificial intelligence in the form of Watson, uh, IBM's Watson, is dependent on the questions you ask. So in a way, as we get this information explosion, um, questions, which are the thing that allows us to dive into that information, work our way through it, filter it, sort it, questions become more and more valuable. Also, questions are the thing that helps us get, you know, get to the next level of knowledge, which we need to get to. You know, we're not going to get there unless we're asking the right questions. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm making the case that, you know, we need to develop those questioning skills more than ever because of the information explosion and because our world is so complex. Yeah, I totally agree. As, as you wrote in, the, in your uh, uh, later book, the book of beautiful questions, which I'll probably talk to you about in the last segment, 
you, you said the beautiful one, the beautiful questions can't be answered by a search on Google. They require different kinds of search. And that yeah. is so true. Uh, yeah, well, it's really true. I mean, you know, it's, it's like Google will get you the Google will get you the most obvious information uh, to the to the most basic questions. But when you want something a little more ambitious, you're not going to get it on Google. Right, right. Well, Warren, this has been great. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Check out the soul of enterprise.com where we'll, we'll have links to Warren's books and other information on them. And also check out patreon.com and become a subscriber to the bonus episodes that we do usually right after the show. And now we want to hear from our sponsors. of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Back on the Soul of Enterprise and longshoreman turned philosopher Eric Hoffer said, language was invented to ask questions. Answers may be given in grunts and gestures, but questions must be spoken. Humanness came of age when man asked the first question. Social stagnation results not from a lack of answers, but from the absence of impulse to ask new questions. So Warren, what are your thoughts on Mr. Hoffer's quote there? Yeah, I love it. It's it's and it's it's so true. I mean, um, I've often heard artists say that um, they are obsessed with the question, you know. Um, and when they're creating art, they're living in the question, you know. And and so they um, they're not trying to find answers. They're trying to find questions, new questions that they can live live in 
and wrestle with and explore. And, and that, that wrestling is where the art comes from, you know? And I, I think that's kind of what we're talking about here. The idea that your, your humanness, your creativity, your ability to make progress, all of it seems to be tied up with this ability to keep asking new questions and, and then be also to be able to live with a question, you know, to not just ask a question and wonder about it for five minutes and then let it go into the ether, which is what lots of people do, right? Lots of people say, gee, wouldn't it be amazing if such and such, they think of a great question and then they never think of it again. They just let it go. But what's, what you find artists do and innovators do and, and great creative people do is they think of that great question and then they just go to work on it. I mean, they just, they just make it their question and they pursue it. And that is how they end up doing great things. Yeah. And I, I do think that, that he really nailed that idea of social stagnation from a, is the, not the impulse of that lack of answers, right? We got politicians, both sides of the aisle, they all have answers, but yeah. none of them ask new questions. That's, and I think that's really the problem that we're experiencing right now. Yeah. And, and, and the problem too, is that, you know, questioning is sort of the, the main tool of critical thinking, you know? So if you are not able to use questioning effectively, then you have trouble with critical thinking. And if you have trouble with critical thinking, you, well, you know, there may be answers all over the place, but you can't tell the difference between the good answer and the bad answer. You can't tell the difference between the answer that makes sense and the one that doesn't make sense or the one that is, you know, propaganda. So, um, so I think it, the society is so dependent on people being able to have that questioning skill that ability to challenge and that ability to um, evaluate and make sense of things. Uh, if, if that's not there, then, then, uh, you know, a society starts to get into trouble. Yeah. Ron mentored Richard Feynman. And I, I believe this is Richard Feynman's story as well, that he, he said that he was asked by his mom whenever he got home from school, what questions did you ask? Today? Uh, yeah. 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 That, that was actually um, somebody else that oh, story comes Feynman? from. Okay. Yeah. I know it was a Nobel Prize uh, scientist um, whose name is escaping me right now. But okay. um, well, at least we had he, Nobel. Feynman won a Nobel, so we're in the ballpark. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a similar similar situation. But yeah, and he used to he used to go to school, and he would come home from school, and his his mom would say uh, his name was was Isidore. His mom would say, "Izzy, did you ask a good question today?" I believe his last name was Rabi. R-A-B-I. Yep, sure. Um, and he was uh, just an amazing uh, scientist. But, but yeah, that was, his, um, that was his story about how he, he said, that's how I became a scientist. Because my mom was always you know, asking me, did I ask a good question? And I, I got into the art of questioning. And, and of course, once you're into questioning, you're halfway there to being a scientist. Well, she, so you, you should know that, uh, and I do remember reading that in your book, and it inspired me. I ask, well, I actually direct my kids. It's more of a direction. I probably should do it the other way. But when we did go to school, uh, on the way out the door, I would, I would always, my admonition to them was ask good questions today. Yeah, that absolutely. My... And I think it's a great thing to tell kids. And, and you know, it's necessary to tell them that because they, they again, the, the signal they might be getting out there in the world is questions don't matter or questions are annoying, 
if you ask questions, you're being a, you're being a, a brown noser or you're showing people that you don't know stuff. You're revealing your weaknesses. So there's all kinds of signals that kids get about questioning that are bad, that are negative signals. And that's why you have to counteract that by making sure they get the positive signals that say, no, 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 your questions are really valuable and you should ask them and you should stick with them. Yeah, we, we, we try to live that in our house too. And it, because sadly in business, this, well, there's no such thing as a bad question. Then if you ask one, they're like, well, that's stupid. What's yeah, what? <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah, it's, there's so many problems in the business world around questions. There's yeah. a great one that someone had said years ago, and I, I can't remember who, I think it was a consultant who said, a lot of people are afraid to ask questions in the workplace because they're afraid the boss is going to say, okay, you asked that question, now you have to answer it. Yeah. And they don't want to take on that responsibility. So, I mean, there's all kinds of things that can happen around questioning in the, in the workplace that just as with school, there are negative signals you're sending to people um, that, uh, you know, whenever a, a boss says, you know, don't bring me questions, only bring me answers. You know, they always, I, I hear people say that and they think they're being, they think that's a great thing to say. And I disagree. You know, I don't think that's a great thing to say. I don't think people should have to bring you answers because that puts too much of a burden on them. Now they not only have to identify the problem, they have to solve it. You know, you want them to identify stuff. You want them to identify an opportunity, identify a problem. Don't also say to them, by the way, you not only have to identify it, you have to figure out the entire solution in advance before you even mention it to anybody. Yeah, yeah, pretty crazy. Well, I've got about five minutes left with you. So I want to uh, bounce some of my, my, I've collected some great questions in my consulting career over time. And I'm going to uh, not ask them to you, but I want to ask you about them, what your your thoughts are on them. And the, the first one is perhaps the simplest and the one that I use most often, and is just to ask somebody this would it be appropriate for me to ask you questions at this time? <laughs> ah, I like it. Yeah. No, I, it be, because the, the thing about that falls under the category of, of what, what I think of as a, um, where you put a little uh, preamble onto the beginning of your question. Uh, and what it is, is it's a way to prepare people for questions. A lot of times, you know what the simplest, one of the simplest one of those you can do is just to say the words, I'm curious. Before you ask a question, you say, I'm curious about something. I'm curious or I was wondering about something. And then you ask the question. Now, that might seem like nothing, no big deal, right? It's really important because what it does is it, it prepares the person for the question you're going to ask, gives them a little more time, and it also, um, it also signals to them that the question is coming from a good place. So uh, I like the one you mentioned as well, because I, I think it, it sort of shows that you're being respectful and um, you're going to ask a question, but you want to make sure it's, uh, you know, it's the right time. It's the right situation. Yeah. And, and that's what you're doing is just, you're really just getting confirmation that I'm, I'm now really replacing advice with curiosity at this yeah, point. Exactly. Right, right and making that shift and it's been helpful so this is one i've recently added to my repertoire and that is if you had any doubts about me what would they be ah interesting yeah i like it i mean one of the things we're trying to do with questioning is just give people invite people to share i mean that's what a big part of what questioning is about so what you're doing there is you know you're using questioning 
to, uh, to give people permission to share whatever their concerns are, whatever they might be. And those are good for you to know, right? You want to know those, you want to know those up front so you can address them. And um, it just in a general sense, a lot of times when we're asking questions, we're afraid of the information we're going to get back. And, and we really shouldn't be, you know, I mean, uh, you know, that I, I heard someone say one time that when you're asking feedback, for instance, ask for feedback in a way that really invites criticism, because that's what you want. You know, uh, some someone I can't recall who has said, don't ask, you know, do you like my idea? Ask people what's wrong with my idea? What do you not like about it? And what you're doing there is you, you're saying you're doing what feedback is supposed to do. You're, you, you know, feedback only helps you if people are honest and you're using the question to give people permission to be honest. Yeah. And it, it, the, the use of the word if at the beginning also puts the conditional on it so that it's yeah. less intimidating. All right. I got two more for you. One, one is the, the question that I've decided having conducted probably over a thousand interviews in my career for people, uh, you know, job interviews. And that if I, I could nail it down to one question that I would ask to try to make a decision on whether to hire somebody, this is the question. Okay. Who is a hero of yours and why? Ah, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty good one. <laughs> uh, I think what I like about that question is it gets at, you know, sort of core values and it, and it really can, you know, can, can let, let you know what, what person, what someone really cares about deeply. And, um, uh, don't ask me that question, though, please, because I think I'd probably the, the only problem I have with questions like that. Yeah. Sometimes you catch people short and they really a question like that is so big and so important that sometimes they need a little bit of time to think about it. And so the only thing I would suggest on that is think about whether there's a way to tip them off in advance that you're going to be asking them that question. Because there's nothing yep. wrong with them having a little bit of time to think about that as opposed to having to answer off the cuff. Absolutely. In fact, you're 100% correct. One of the things I do say, even with all of the questions that I ask on an interview is, it's okay for you to pause and think. I'm, I'm really okay with that. As, as someone who's interviewing you, right. I'm okay with that. And yep. I let them know that. All right. So here's, here's the last one. And this is, I, I stole this from Peter Block, who I think stole it from somebody else, but I can't recall who. This is what he calls the mother of all questions. Oh, wow. <laughs> Ready? <laughs> yeah. or the Moak, the mother of all questions. So here it is. What is the question that if you had the answer mm. would make you free? <laughs> <laughs> wow. That is, that's, that one is making my brain hurt. Yes. Uh, well, yeah, what, that's what, a, that's what a great says about it quickly is that he's, and then, and I'll have you respond. But what he says is that it's an unanswerable question. You can only really be pondered. And that's why it's such a great question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so what, what that's going to reveal to you is whether how a person reacts to that question is going to tell you a lot about them. Because if they kind of panic, it means they're a person who is not comfortable uh, grappling with a difficult question. And that's one of the th important things to see in an interview, right, is whether someone, uh, especially in today's world where we have to deal with so much uncertainty, you want to see how does a person deal with uncertainty? How do they deal with questions that don't have an easy answer and things they're not prepared for? And so, you know, that's kind of uh, it, that, that question will will challenge them in that way, which is interesting.
Well, Warren, this has been great. Ron's going to take you the last 15 minutes. I want to thank you for being a guest today on the Soul of Enterprise, but also remind our audience that the place to check us out, not only on the web, the Soul of Enterprise, but is our Patreon site, patreon.com slash TSOE, where you can listen to bonus episodes as well as the show commercial free. But right now, a commercial. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise well, welcome back everybody we're here with warren berger and he's the author of a more beautiful question which we talked about in in my first session with you warren and now i want to jump to your your, your follow-up book, The Book of Beautiful Questions, which came out in 2018. I, I love that Eli, is it Weisel quote, the American Romanian writer and Holocaust survivor. People are united yeah. by questions. It yeah. is the answers that divide them. That, that's <laughs> profound. <laughs> yeah, it is. And it's, and it's profound for these times because I think what we're, you know, what we're seeing is um, uh, people divide into their separate camps and then they each camp has what it considers to be its answers, its its doctrine, its solutions for everything, its approaches. And um, the problem is the answers just kind of butt up against each other. And it feels to me like the only way you break that is through questions. So one side or the other side has to be willing to stop spouting answers and start um, asking questions of the other side and uh that that will then initiate a dialogue and will initiate some back and forth and i do think that's kind of you know that's kind of where we are uh as a culture and you know that's one of the things we need to get better at is being curious um someone used the line we need to replace judgment with curiosity and we're very quick to judge uh 
ideas and people that are different, we need to somehow replace that with a sense of curiosity about ideas and people that are different from our own. Yeah. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. Um, you also discuss, and I love this kind of metaphor, the difference between a soldier and, and a scout. What is that yeah. difference? Yeah, well, a, a, a soldier is, uh, you, you know, I was using it in terms of the metaphor was about the mentality you choose to adopt for yourself. And do you choose to uh, take on the mentality of a scout or a soldier? And the basic difference comes down to a scout is always searching and exploring. Scout is trying to find new, new territory, new where we're going to go next. What are we going to do when we get there? So a scout is always exploring. A soldier is defending. A soldier hunkers down and defends. Now, um, when you apply this to, to your mindset, to your attitudes and your opinions, if you're in the scout mindset, you're going to be open to change. You're going to be exploring. You're going to be learning. But if you have a soldier uh, mindset and you're hunkered down and you're defending your thoughts, you're defending your beliefs and you're defending your positions. And that's all you're doing is defending. Um, it's a problem because it means you're not going to let any new information in and you're not going to be open to the possibility that you might be wrong. You know, <laughs> we're all wrong a lot, you know, but if you're in that defensive mindset that says, you know, my goodness, the worst thing in the world is to be wrong. Um, if you take that position, it, it's really not good for your intellectual development. And it's not good for us as, as a society if people are taking, lots of people are taking that position. If they're more concerned with being right than they are with learning or uh, understanding or making progress, if they're just more concerned with being right, that's a problem. You know, I was recently asked about business books. I've, I've written a few. I know you have. And the question was, do you think they'll survive? Because I've recently kind of frowned on business books over the last several years. I, I think most of them don't have a shelf life, you know, beyond a month or two. It's a real, it's real rarity to find one that really makes an impact like, like yours has. Uh, what do you, you know, because I think there'll always be a market for them though. And that was my answer because people. Yeah, I think so gravitate towards easy answers. They don't want to do deep thinking. They just want to learn, tell right. me how to do it. <laughs> right. Although, you know, I found it interesting. Some, when I was writing about leadership in my book, I talked about the fact that there's more books and articles and blogs and information about leadership than ever before. And yet we seem to have a crisis of leadership. So those two things make you wonder gosh, is the information doing any good at all? <laughs> you know, it seems like all of these tips on leadership are somehow not getting to the people that, that need to lead. So um, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I think, I think there's a value in having all of that out there. But I also think that the people who are taking in all that information need to... Um, be willing to step back sometimes from all the information that other people are throwing at them and use their own brain, you know, use their own uh, critical thinking, use their instincts, use their judgment, use their, um, uh, their own uh, sense of what's good and what's bad and what's right and what isn't. Um, they need to be able to apply that stuff as opposed to just, you know, 
taking in other people's information. So I do think that's one thing that I would say to people is, you know, yes, a part of being a, a good decision maker and a, a good critical thinker is you want to take in as much information as possible, but you need to apply your own best judgment to it and, and come to your own positions on things as opposed to just, you know, being a receptacle for other people's um, ideas and views. Right. So I'm going to ask the questionologist a question that I'd love an answer to. And it's Peter Thiel's question. You cite it in the book and I read it in his book, uh, zero to one. Mm. What is something you believe Warren that nearly no one agrees with you on? Oh, wow. Well, I think when I started out on this, um, the, the, it was that statement that the question is more va- is, is, is becoming more valuable than answers or is gaining value faster than answers. That was probably a, a statement that I got about a 90% disagree, uh, disagree rate on, you know, in terms of 90% of people just did not agree with that at all. They couldn't, uh, they, they didn't really see the logic in it. And then sometimes after I would make my case, they would start to see it a little bit, but still uh, a high disagreement uh, rate on that. And, and that's okay because it's a, it's a, it's a debatable um, uh, position. It's a debatable concept. Um, but I, uh, I do find now people are more willing to at least, um, engage the idea. And some people are starting to agree more. Um, another thing I'll give you one more, if I could real quickly is, is a couple of years ago, I started saying to people that you should get rid of your mission statement as a company and you should replace it with a mission question. (laughs) And I got about a 90% disagree, (laughs) disagree rate on that as well. Um, but I have had a few people um, that have warmed to it. I actually was, you know, had a lot of discussions with Starbucks about this, and they and they were kind of starting to bring it closer to their mission statement. They were bringing questions closer, but um, but there's a high, uh, you know, th- there was a high disagreement on it because people felt, no, 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 our mission statement has to be a bold statement. It has to be emphatic, and we can't. If we turn it into a question, it will seem like we're uncertain about it and we don't really, maybe we don't fully believe it. And so that was where they disagreed with me. I have a totally different view, which, you know, if you're interested, I could share it about why a mission question is way better than a mission statement. But anyway, that's just my, you know, that's my position and, you know, a lot of resistance on that. No, I, I love that from the book. And, and, uh, Unfortunately, Warren, we're up against time, but uh, yeah. you're, the two books that you wrote are just fantastic. So we're going to highly recommend them. We'll put links up to them in our show notes. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a thrill and an honor to uh, talk to you about your work because we're we're huge fans. So so I hope you keep it up. And Ed, what is on store for next week? Next week, Ron, we're going to talk about value pricing 1.0 versus value pricing 2.0. All right. I'll see you in 167 hours. Thank you very much, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you, Warren. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern. That's 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please do visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com.